Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, Sunday afternoon, midday, out here in Baltimore, and I'm going to take the opportunity this week to be more efficient and see if I can get out the bio today. Today's podcast is being sponsored by the Erectans. Ms. Rechthans, uh, for her mother-in-law's yard site, for Dr. Rechthans' mom's yard site, which is today. Which is today. Very good. And let me see what she wrote. Her name is Fager Rezabas Menachem Mendel. So as we say, Neshama Fager Rezabas Menachem Mendel Shavra And she's from Sosnowitz and Ben Dean. <laughs> I know how to spell those names. Uh, ben Dean, by the way, is a Gera territory. Gera Hasidim, you know, Ben Dinerov. And was caught up in World War II. I know this generation, because the Polish were the worst. They were under Hitler for five years, more, right? From 39 to 45, that's more. It's uh, just uh, terrible. And she suffered through many concentration camps, was liberated in Germany. Not too many Polish Jews made it from 39 to 44 and survived, obviously, obviously. And she writes her personal history is sparse, because her parents didn't discuss this too much. But she got married. After the war in the DP camps, apparently, or something like that, Bravo Zabrowski. Yeah, at that time he was in Munich. Later on, remember, he was in Philly. I know him a little bit in Atlantic City. Uh, that's another story. I once played a trick on him, but I won't go into that. They stayed in Germany for three years, and then they came to this country. It's like my parents, you know, right? And her husband was an only child, so there. Boy, do I know that. In other words, they suffered through the war, then they survived. They got married after the war and had one child. And uh, a good Jewish mother took care. So what else can you say? Listen, unfortunately, she passed away in her early 60s. But at least she had a life after the war. So many people didn't have a life after the war. So as I said before, there's Shama, Shama and Aliyah, and his descendants and children were from, were successful. That's what, and that's the, I won't say it's the best victory over Hitler, because it's not, but it's the only one. You know, what else can you do? Now, with any further ado, I saw, I asked Ari, who's, I'm going to try to get back a little more normal over here. Not that there's any normal in any of my podcasts, but I've been running around with different names in the Yunt of season, and I had college and all that, and now I just finished marking all the papers. On the other hand, I do have, and let me tell you about this, I'm starting tonight, uh, I am doing a series of four lectures online on my YouTube channel, so you just Google my name with the YouTube and uh, Jewish history with Rabbi Cass or something like that. And um, someone asked me to do a, this is a series being sponsored, the whole series by one person. They want to do Yiddish and Jewish history, the Yiddish language and Jewish history, which is a, a wide subject. And tonight is the first of four talks. If everything goes, so if you go on my channel, if you're interested in the subject, but it's a, it's a lecture, it's a video, it's a YouTube um, with a PowerPoint and everything. So, uh, if you go tonight, it'll be nine o'clock, I believe it'll be available. And, uh, afterwards, and then it should be Monday. Um, it should be Sunday night, Wednesday night, Sunday night, Wednesday night, grand total of four. So I hope by Wednesday night, the second one will be out. If not, it'll be Thursday night. Don't go crazy. But you know, by the end of this week, Mary Session will have the second one out and then the following week. So this week's a little bit of a hot house around here. Cause I got a knock these, uh, um, put together these lectures and knock them out. Nevertheless, I do want to uh, um, devote myself today to uh, the uh, bio. It's a tuba meyava. I asked Ariel Bama, who's, who's the yard city this week? He gave me a list and I see one I could do, you know, top of the hat, just without any work whatsoever, because I always like him. We're talking over here of a rabbi who lived in, in the Prague in the, in the 1700s, early 1800s. 1754, 1825, 1826. So, as I mean, it was in the 70s when he passed away. Right? Around 72. Now, um, that's Central Europe, that's Prague. And this is a person, he was a great person, but sometimes you have the misfortune to live at the wrong time in history. In my opinion, that's what happened over here, as we shall see. 
Our hero, therefore, lived all of his life in Prague, except for a short time. It's like I'm all in Baltimore, you know? I'm a product of Baltimore, for better or worse. He's a product of Prague. And that's who he was his whole life, except for a short period. Now, our hero, Eleazar Fleckelis. Fleck is a, is a Jewish name, Yiddish name from old. You know, saying Flecka. So Fleckelis means the, the son of Flecka. That's all. In in Ashkenazi Jews, if there was ever a hush of a lady in the family, a lot of times they would call after her. What do I mean, hush of a lady in the family? She wore the economic pants in the family. Get it? You can have a husband, as well as Yusuf, for one reason or another, at least economically. And the wife ran the show. I mean, she ran the business. So she left a reputation um, as a gavra in business. They would call the family after her. Uh, Blumas, you know, Saras. There's a lot of names like that. It tells you who wore the economic pants in the family. Or occasionally, not often, she was a tremendous tzedekis. So she outshone the husband. That you'll find also sometimes. You understand? Know she was a huge tzedekis and she left a big reputation. And therefore, instead of calling by the husband's name the family, because he was just her husband. <laughs> He's a regular guy. But she was famous for one reason or another. They would call after a lady. That's just a piece of social history among the Ashkenazi. Now, um, in the case we're talking about, um, Sir Belazer Fleckless is Czech, born in Prague. Uh, from, you know, Big Yichus, he descended Maral, for example, and um, in 1700s. And he, if he is born in Prague in the 1750s, <clears throat> he's living his life there in the second half of the 18th century, right? From 1750 to 1800 and beyond. That means he lives through the Haskalah, right? The Haskalah. And he lives through the disintegration of the old firm. In fact, that gives his life, in my opinion, a tragic quality. He lived at a time when things slowly but surely fell apart. Why slowly but surely? Prague had some impressive Rabbonim. And the fact that they had impressive Rabbonim, who were impressive, first of all, in terms of their scholarship, and second of all, in terms of their personality, that retarded the process of falling apart. It didn't arrest it. It didn't prevent it. But it retarded it. So... I'm thinking specifically on the note of Yehuda, who was there from the same, the year he came, 1754. The year our hero was born, <clears throat> that's when Note Yehuda showed up, or maybe a year later. And uh, he was there for 40 years, from the 1750s, 1790s. It's all during the first half of the life of our hero and beyond. The note of Yehuda, among other things, was a very impressive personality, besides being a Tamil You have these rabbis who were big scholars, but, you know, they were nothings in their personal life. They didn't have much ashpah. You get it? You know, that one's got nothing to do with the other necessarily. A person could be a tremendous scholar, but that's for the book world and for the few Talmudim. You know what comes to mind like that? Minchas Chinuch. Nobody heard anything about it. He wasn't anything impressive in terms of politics and all the rest of it. And yet, um, he wrote this unbelievable safer that took off, as we all know. So, uh, no dude is not like that. Very impressive. Even the, uh, you know, his opponents uh, acknowledge that. So because of that, he uh, he was able to, um, what shall I say? He was able to uh, uh, overawe his opponents to some degree. And therefore, as we say today, they had their hairs, for the most part. And if they did anything wrong, they hid it. This was not the case in other communities where, um, you know, people just, uh, you know, told the rabbi where to go. And our hero was a successor in the Yehuda in a certain way, as we'll see. And he also was an impressive person, not the same way, not with that stature, uh, but he wasn't like the Talmud Muvak on the Huda, as we shall see. And because he had a strong presence, again, it retarded the decline, but it didn't prevent the decline. That's uh, just an interesting fact. And it tells you a lot. Now, um, specifically, our hero was born in the 1750s. He had, he's from the from, uh, half of the community, wasn't from the ones who went for Daskala, not his family. Therefore, he went to traditional route, and that's what the 1700s is like. You're going to have people who's totally in the old world. You're going to have people already broken away from the old world, especially in the community like Prague. It's just such a rich variety in its population. And so he learned uh, by the big Russia Shivas in Prague, which were among the major in the world. And one was Mayor Fischler, I know you never heard of him, but he was a big deal. Take my word for it. I was in the Shul in Prague 
forget which one it is, which where he had his yeshiva in. It's one of those uh, pretty synagogues that they take in the tourist thing in Prague, right? And um, Mayor Fischl's was a big deal. But then, after two years learning by him, he, what he called, he went to, um, to learn by the Nodeb Yehuda. Okay? And uh, he was there for 10 years. So there's no question. So he's a local boy who learns, I mean, let's put it this way. It's like a, it's like me learning in there as well. You live in town. You follow? You don't live the dormitory life, which was a hard life in those days. But you live in town. And, you know, the yeshiva's a block or two away from your house, however big, how big is the Jewish neighborhood? And just sociologically, it's very interesting. A boy like this can come home to mommy for lunch. I'm not making fun of that. That's That means you have an easier time with the learning. Uh, everybody else is pasta melech tocha, you have lunch at home, you have dinner at home, if you want. Okay? That's what they did in those days. Because the yeshiva, like the Nodebuta had, which was 400 boys, did not have a dormitory. So people were stuffed all over the place. So our hero had it good in that regard. And therefore he had a very positive yeshiva experience, as I would say today. He became very close to Nodebuta. He was obviously a brilliant student, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about him. And um, from an early age, I remember reading this. There's a German biography of his, on him, believe it or not. I remember in 1906, in the Mondatschrift, I believe it was, or one of those types of things. He used to have in Germany hundreds some years ago, uh, all these uh, academic journals, some of which had good articles. Some, you know, like everywhere, some good articles, some bad articles. You know what I mean? And uh, I had a guy in Scholl, Wolf Rotenberg, I still remember, years ago. He was my preceptor, Germanus. Passed away. Nice man. And he liked to, uh, and he was a, his German was a lot better than mine. Mine is good enough, but his was a lot better. And we used to read a lot of German stuff of this type on Shabbos afternoon before I gave a class in Scholl. He had a ball and I had a ball. And I remember we read this whole uh, bio of a Fleckless by somebody, was it Solomon Lieben or something like that? He used to write all these things. And I remember he said from an early age, he liked to darshan. Like three, four, five years old, something like that. I'm going by memory. He would stand up on the table, and his parents would encourage him, and we'd give a drasha. So some people have it in the blood. So what's going to be interesting about him is he's going to follow the usual route, rabbi, rosh hashiva, and all that sort of thing. But he's going to be, let me put it this way, he will particularly excel as a, as, as a speaker, as an orator, uh, which is not so common. You had them in Prague, no question about it. And I've spoken about one or two in the past, I think. But he's definitely up there. And uh, he's just a good speaker. And I've mentioned before, occasionally in my podcast here and there, I'm a fan of his. And I'm fortunate enough to live at a time when all of his stuff was reprinted nicely, except his shalos and shubas. I'm still waiting for that. Now, um, there's a guy, you know, if you've been to Yeshiva elsewhere, you know, there's always one or two guys around that are just naturally good speakers. And when I say good speakers, I don't only mean with the oratory shtick. You know, with the gestures and raising and loading the voice, although that's important. But I mean, the, the content. The type of person I'm into, you know, is, uh, how shall I put it? He's going to notice the agaritas. You get what I'm saying? He's going to notice and think about Perkyovas. He's going to notice and think about Enyakos and that sort of business. Where the other guys, you know, more like in the regular dry, halachic, Talmudic material. Now, he knew that too. And as I say, he'll become a great gong. But he's also very good on the drush part. Which was extremely important. It always is extremely important. It's particularly important in that era because you're trying to be mashpia on the tzibur, not to go too far to the left. That's it. So one of the tricks you have to have in your uh, arsenal is to be a good speaker. Uh, everybody knows the worst thing in the world is hear a lousy speech. Would you agree with that? That's the worst thing. Especially by some rabbi who thinks he's good and goes on and on. And people are like, uh, You see he's particularly... At simchas, at funerals, all kinds of things. You know, they go on and on and on. And they're having a great time. They think they're doing great. They think they're wowing the public. Whereas everybody said, oh, they're disgusted with this. He wasn't like that at all. Okay? Now, um, at the age of 17, he got married. That's the old school. He married a rich girl. So that meant that, um, again, this is how they used to se select out in the old system, like a Darwinian system, survival of the fittest economically. In the old days... If you went to Yeshiva, it's a business that starts like 10, 11, 12 years old. And it goes from 13 years old, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, like that. Those are your Yeshiva years. 
Not many people can go beyond that. Because sooner or later you get married. And when you get married, either you have a future in learning or you don't. Well, before you talk about anything else, the two things that are going to have to come together for you to have a future in learning are A and B. A, you have to have a head for it. So some people can tell by the age of <laughs> earlier than 17, learning ain't for me. Now, I can become a good ball boss and, uh, you know, as they would say today, Moxic Torah and all that sort of thing. No problem. No problem whatsoever. You might right, might rise to big position based on your guilt. Um, but in other words, a head for learning you don't have. Now, he did. But that's not all. There's a ton of people in the old system where they could have a good head for learning, but they have the money. And therefore, learning means you learn. You have to sit, put in time. You have to cover a lot of ground. You have to do a lot of reading, as we say today. Who's got the time and patience for that? Perhaps, as usually happened, I'm just trying to show you social history of the past. Someone could be 15, 16, 17 years old, 18 years old. He actually is pretty good in learning. But Shadukham-wise, he's not going to marry a rich girl. Uh, and he done that money, let's say, put it that way. That scenario happened a lot. So what does that mean? Here you are, 18, 19, 20, whatever. That's when people got married. So let's say you got married in 19. I'll just make it up. And you're a nice guy and she's a nice girl. But you got to make a living. Before you know it, you have children. You, you, you have bills to pay. You have to put food on the table. True or not? Yeah, of course. There's a ksuba out there, you know. And so let's be honest. If you're going to be a peddler or this or a storekeeper or all the rest of it, you don't have time to learn. You get it? I mean, of course, on Shabbos and evening, I understand that. You know, you, you can do that. But for most people, it's a radical reduction of the physical ability to become a great common chacham. That's just how it went. Uh, it is possible, like I said before, you know, to circumvent the system, but it's very hard. And usually what it meant was, this is probably the case today, by the way, all the things are a little bit different, but to be a big learner, if you don't have the years, you know, and the kolil and all the rest of it, it ain't going to happen. Let's be honest. It ain't going to happen. You'll be a good person. So become a guttle, as we would say. Things have to, all the ducks have to be in a row. And so he married a rich girl, so therefore the family was able to support him to pass the age of 17 for so and so many years, put in time and learning. And that's how it became a Talmud You don't become a Talmud by having an IQ. You can only become a Talmud by by learning, by covering ground. Now, um, here's a guy that I would say for seven years or something like that, after marriage, his his family wasn't poor either, by the way. They weren't rich, but they weren't poor. But the girl he married was rich, Bondi, Bondi. And um, this was in the, let's see now, early 1754, so 1771. So there still was a from era in Prague. The Haskell was just about to begin. And so he, he, he got married, quote-unquote, in the right time. And um, he was there for seven years. That's a long time of learning, which he employed, you know, uh, what's the right word, constructively. He, he didn't waste his time. But uh, by the time he's 24 years old, uh, so knew where's it going. Uh, you see, he didn't have like that now, like in Israel, you learn for life. I told you, you had a Darwinian system, you know, you make a cut, then, then you got to do something. Now, since he was a favorite student of Nodavi Huda, Nodavi was the chief rabbi of Prague, and he was also the chief rabbi of Bohemia. That's a story by itself. I don't have time to do Nodavi Huda. That would take 10 hours. So he had the protects, he had the pole, and he got Mishtel. But Mishtel means a small community that's in Bohemia Moravia. He went go time, right? They're famous scholars, go time. Go time was a small community. I bet you it had 50, 100 families, if anything. That's what it meant, Mishtel outside of a big city. Yeah, Prague, excuse me, Prague was unusual, unique. And Prague had thousands of Jews. That's very untypical, atypical. So to be a Roman in a small town means like this. You're 24 years old. He <clears throat> was there for a while in this small community. Um, let's put it this way. A Parnosa is not great, but it's a Parnosa. But again, he had money. Uh, I don't know if he still had money like that, but you know, he had enough money. As, as a matter of fact, I'll say this, and you see this a lot in America. It's the rich guy can afford to be a rabbi, part-time rabbi, because he doesn't need the money. You see that in many places. I've seen that in my time, a lot of places. The rabbi can be a part-time rabbi, but shul, shul can't pay him a lot. But he has other sources of income, let's put it that way. <laughs> right? A regular guy can't make it when he's part-time salaries. 
So anyway, um, there he is in a small town. You do have Tommy Hands, so you can sit and learn, and he certainly did. Um, you're a rough now. You're Paskin Shilas. You do the Gitan. You're in charge of the area. You're in charge of the Mecca. You're in charge of the Kashras. He was our basin of a community. I, I repeat, it's not a giant community, but most of the communities in Moravia where he was were not giant at all. He's a rub over there. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a desert. It's a midbar. You don't have nobody to talk to. A town like Gotan, I guess it would a 100 families if it was that. Uh, nobody talked to him. So they respect you. And by the way, they got a fantastic deal with him because actually he was a good public speaker. You know, usually you take a rove in the old days, nine out of 10 times he can't speak. And it's not expecting a contract to speak. I don't count Shabbos and Godel and Shabbos Shub as a speech. You know, that's not a speech. You know, so you'd be, to be a market, they used to have a market, go from town to town or whatever they did. And the market is supposed to give the speeches, the kind of speeches that people like today and liked at that time. And him, he got a two for one because he just happened to be, among other things, talented. So I'm actually describing a person in his 20s who's already probably Bucky Bishas. He knows Halacha Cold. After all, he did Shemesh with the note of Yehuda. He was close to him. So you, you just don't get better than that. Okay? And, you know, he had questions. He used to write back and forth to Noda Yehuda all the time because they were fond of each other. And Noda Yehuda was one of these Gedolim who was very charismatic. And he always kept up long correspondences with his students and things like that. It's very nice. Now you do it by email. Those things you did by regular mail. And we have, by the way, many uh, Shalos and Noda Yehuda, some printed in the book and some printed in the new Noda Yehuda's. You know what I mean? That are uh, uh, published in Israel, the nice new deluxe edition. There's extras, letters between him and, and our hero, Lazar Fleckless. And uh, you see they're very close. They have a very loving relationship. It's actually pleasant to read this. But a active personality is going to be bored to death in a town like this. And what you can't stand is see all this Amaratz is running around. So what he wanted to do... Um, was have somebody talking and learning. Uh, how are you going to do that? Well, you have to raise the money. In that town, a small town, you can't raise the money. Anytime you hear about somebody building yeshiva, he's got to have access to funds. Or else he has to be willing to travel around a lot and uh, hit up the rich people. And it's, um, you know, it's going to be hard. It's just going to be hard. And so, um, that good he wasn't. So, here's a guy... Um, what shall I say? Over the course of four or five years, he's around in the town. It's okay. You know, it's a small community. He's certainly more than adequate for the job, as we would say today, overqualified for the job. He's a machadish. He learned by the Nodabihuda. That's a world of lambdas. Think of the tzalach. Think of the Nodabihuda itself. You understand? He wanted the kashas to roots in chidushin, chidushin. And, and you have. A, a flock of sheep, you know, they don't know anything in your community. And so it just says intellectual drove him crazy. So he's always complaining, what should I do? I want to start a yeshiva here. How will I do it? And I'm sure they discuss different possibilities. But after a while, Nodi Behuda said, I guess, it ain't going to work in a little town. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to uh, use my protexia because I know you. And he got him a job. He says, a post opened for a die-in on the basin of Prague which was a very prestigious basin and it had a famous people on it and one died and nobody says, I'm going to get you the job. And he did. <clears throat> so that means he stayed there for the rest of his life from 1783 for the next 40 years until 1826. <clears throat> so as I said before, he lived his whole life in, in Prague except it was five years in that, in that hick town community. The rest of the time was in Prague. It's like being in New York or New York general area and then being out in the middle of Idaho for five years and then you come back to New York, you know? Or Lakewood or something like that. That's how it was. Now, um, in the last decade of his life, because nobody would have died in 1793 and he came in 1793, see, his health started to deteriorate. I'm talking about Anuda Behuda. So our hero was one of the guys that, you know, helped keep him afloat. And uh, you can just imagine it was a very good relationship. Um, and he was a chip off the old block and wanted to follow like Anuda Behuda. Um, and Nodihu died in 1793. Now, um, when the Nodihu died, a lot of politics, because by this time, 
in the 1770s, 1780s, the Haskalah movement arose. The Haskalah movement, and I've spoken about this in the past, had a right wing, a left wing, and a middle wing, as it did everywhere. There was a strong right wing. Uh, I think I did. Who was it? Uh, um, uh, Yekulis, who was the leader of the right wing of Haskalah, and he was like a Pisic, a big Tom McCulloch. He wrote a safer a parish on what he called the Tom Melch, which is a parish on the Shire Melch, which is a Lamdish Saver. That was ahead of that scallop. But you also had left wingers who were mamish off the deep end. You understand? And they had the people in the middle. So the note of Yehuda in his last years of his life had a lot of trouble from this because he didn't like the direction she was going, uh, that the community was going. But it was like unstoppable. Looking back from our perspective now, 200, 250 years, you see that the old traditionalism wasn't good enough. Um, we like to think today that it's enough, especially if you're not Hasidic, it's enough to learning, yeshivas. It didn't prove to be the case then. Uh, both in the, I'll just mention something interesting. Both the Nota Behuda and the student of Lezer Flackless were misnagdim, uh, famous misnagdim, for all kinds of reasons. You know, I think they're from the generation that they're suspected that the Hasidim was a shop to you of some sort or another. That's what I think. But whatever the case is, um, they were able to keep the Hasidus out of Prague, out of Vienna, out of Bohemia. Well, I'm not a Hasid, but Hasidim, I've seen Hasidic authors writing in the 19th century. After all this was over and Prague fell apart, they say, see, you know, you shot yourself in the foot. If there would have been couple of Hasidic rabbis, that sort of thing in Prague, um, the Yiddish code would have been stronger. Now, I understand why they were opposed to it, and it's an interesting argument if it would have worked, and something we'll never know. It's a what if, you know, what do they call the counterfactual? But I do think that there's something to that, because the general Yiddish code simply, uh, there comes a time in certain circumstances that if learning and the Shiva's all doesn't have a kind of dynamic quality to it, it doesn't appear that way to the public. Public loses interest in it, and so you see a place was a big Malcolm Torah, and was flourishing, and this, and that, and the other, and then it wasn't. That is the story of the lifetime after Nodebiuda. So um, when he died, Nodebiuda in seventeen ninety three, our hero was one of several people who wanted to take over. Now I've spoken about some of these rabbis before, but I don't remember what I said. Uh, Noted he had a son, Shmulanda was a big Talmud Chacham. He wanted his father's job. Uh, this Yechelis wanted the job. And our hero, Flechelis, wanted the job. And that simply means that the Noted Behuda left behind X number of middle aged Talmud Chachamim who were, I wouldn't say they're not Bar Hochi. Listen, you're not going to be a Noted Behuda, but still, they're very impressive. And they, each one could have filled the job. The trouble is, they start fighting with each other, and it got very political, as can happen. And so the, it's, it's like three rabbis competing for one stellar, one synagogue. This could happen in Baltimore, it could happen in Muncie, it could happen in Minneapolis, it could happen anywhere, right? And you know what happens. As soon as you have that, you have Team A, Team B, and Team C, and they all tell us on each other. It got very ugly. You understand? And in addition, the rich and the less from in the community welcomed this period because they did not want anybody to succeed to Nodobi Huda. They didn't want anybody to become the official chief rabbi because he would continue to retard their left-wing progress. And they were successful thanks to their mutual fights, I'm sorry to say, between um, our hero and Nodebuta's son and one or two other candidates, and, and nobody won. And so what happened was that the uh, authorities and the killer said, um, there won't be a, a, a rov, there'll just be a then. And you guys anyway, or in the basin anyway, so Shmuel Lando, you'll handle this. Blah, blah, Fleckless, you handle, I don't know, the Gittin, you know, one guy handles the Arab, one guy handles the Kashras. <laughs> so instead of having a rub with an imposing personality, you have what we would call today, you know, a rabbinical board to handle the bureaucratic side of Kehillah life. And that is what happened in Prague. And if there ever was a time when you needed a strong personality that theoretically possibly may have retarded things or not, or at least reverse them, I mean, or possibly reverse them, you had nobody there. You simply have people running the bureaucratic side. Now, mind you, 
Each of these people had a yeshiva of his own. Uh, the left wing guy, Mark Yaglis, had a yeshiva. Uh, Rosh Melanda had a yeshiva. And um, Rav Lezer Fleckles had a yeshiva. But if you have three yeshivas competing with each other, each one's going to be small, you know. So the, the Soda Achtas, I guess, for one reason or another, they come put together. <clears throat> it so happens that this is the period of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. So the Austrian government was like, uh, which ruled Prague, was particularly, you know, uh, uh, domineering. It wasn't easy to be a rabbi. <clears throat> anyway, um, the Austrian government, which ruled over there, was out to unfrom everybody or to impose a government haskalah on the population. This is a long story. Even though the Yehuda's time we had this, they forced him to agree to a public school, a Jewish public school. <clears throat> There's a whole reason by this. So it wasn't easy to be a rabbi in Prague during this period. Um, he had to walk on a tightrope. The Nodavi Hood himself, by virtue of his talents and by stern necessity, developed the great diplomatic skills necessary to deal with the Goyim and the, uh, the uh, especially the Catholic and Austrian authorities. He had to. He had to. And Lesser Fleckers was like that also. He never said anything that would be a chilashem, or never say anything that wouldn't sound well with the others. This is a talent, you understand? Hold on for a second. Sorry about that. Um, he always said everything that was just right, and I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, the, in Prague, there was a big censorship. The Austrian government, the Catholic, the Jesuits, they won't let you publish a safer unless they went through it. And that means if you're, and and let's put it this way, if you go, go against them, you lose. And so uh, a person like the Nerd Behuda had to learn how to get along with the censors, the Catholic priests, the authorities, all the rest of it. Um, and he did. And so did our hero. He became a best friend. There's a lot of literature on this now. With the number one Catholic censor in uh, in Prague, uh, Carolus Fisher, Charles Fisher, who was not Jewish, I mean, you know, and uh, the fact he became a close friend of his, you know, tells you what a smart guy he was, because that way he could get his stuff published, and he would always make sure you know don't criticize Christianity, don't criticize Goyim, couch your remarks in a lofty way, don't say anything ridiculous, you know, it's a, it's in, that's why his writing is so good, out of necessity as much as anything else. Now the point I want to make is like this: so he served therefore for thirty years, thirty three, thirty three years as a, a Rosh Bezdin, I guess we call it, but really a member of the Bezdin. I think he was not the head, but when the other guy died, he took over. It doesn't matter, because once it's not a Rav of the city, so it doesn't matter if you're dying number one or dying number two or dying number three. I mean, they had these titles, and uh, appeals, Appalentin, appeals courts, and there was a difference in salary, but I said it wasn't that big of a deal. So he was an important dying. So you can't say he was the Rav of Prague. But he's a very important Talmud Chacham there, and he was a halachic authority. And I can tell you right now, he got a big reputation, and they wrote to him shalos from all over Europe. Therefore, when he before he died, he published Shalos and Teshuva Me'ava. It's a nice title, Teshuva Me'ava, in which he gets questions from all over the place, and he had his Talmudim students, and it became rabbis. So he fit the what we call the responsive writer profile, but he always will have the problem, as happens, a following a giant, therefore it's tough. Uh, he ain't no nerd behuda. He doesn't claim to be. Uh, he was very good. I like his shoes, by the way. They're very clear. They're very well written. Like I told you, he was a good writer and a good speaker. And so he had a lot of virtues. But he's not a nerd behuda. So what do, you do, what do you do when you follow somebody great? A lot of times you find this in our time in, in the Russian Shiva world. You know, all the big guys died, you know, in the, in the 1980s, whatever, much of Feinstein and... Rudiman or Yakovansky, you know, all these types in Israel. And then comes the one after them. They're just not what the first one was. It's not a taina. It's the way it is. So, but it's, a, it's a, as, as the expression goes, it's if you're looking for fame, you know, it's not a great spot to be. That's why, in my opinion, he's underestimated. That's my personal opinion. I, I like him a lot. And I like his writings a lot. And they're very clear. They have a nice quality, literary quality to them. Now, there's two points I want to make. I left out a very big politics point, and I'm going to talk about it right now. 
and that is Shabtai Tzvi and, and, and Frankism. There were, um, to be exact, there were, um, to be exact, Shabtai Tzvi was in 1666. That's 100 years before our hero was born. And he died a few years after that, long before our hero was born. After Shabtai Tzvi died, there were all these different groups that they call Sabatian, but they weren't really Sabatian. They were, in other words, they all had in common Kfira. <laughs> Can I use that word? Heresy. They all had in common some connection with Shabtai Tzvi, whatever. Uh, as I understand it, and I know from my friend, Professor Machiko and Hopkins, these are world's expert, a lot of these Jewish heresies. You know, only Bimson Nations has some kind of connection or, or was accused of having some kind of connection with Shabtai Tzvi Mamish. The others, they had Sabatian ideas. But we call these groups, whatever they were, popped up like bad mushrooms after a rain, all throughout Europe, after the, from from 1666 to around 1800, we call them Sabatians, Shabtai Tzvi It doesn't mean exactly Shabtai Tzvi. So, uh, and what they have in common is they're against the Torah Shabal they want to modify things, uh, antinomianism, all kind of ideas out there, strange ideas. As a as a uh, generic term like autism, you know, a generic term called Sabathianism. The big one in the lifetime of our hero was in the mid 1700s and late 1700s, exactly when he lived, and that was Frankism. Frank is actually a put down term. It was a Turkish Jew who claimed to be Mashiach of some sport or another. But, you know, you don't have to keep any of the mitzvahs. As a matter of fact, Gila Rice is a big mitzvah by them. Right? You know what I said? Gila Rice is like a major mitzvah. Uh, to violate Hilkas Nida is like a major mitzvah. So they turned everything upside down. He was called Yaakov. His name was Yaakov. And he came from, I don't know, uh, Istanbul or maybe it was Salonika, one of these places. We used to have a lot of these phonies. And he had, must have been charismatic because he got a following. And he was one of the classic 18th century charlatans. That he built himself a lot of money. He got a court around him. Uh, he lived in a castle in different places. It's a whole story. Again, if you're at all interested in this, either you Google Frank, Jacob Frank, or you get the book from Professor Machiko, he'll give you more than you want to know about this particular heresy. He went to Bracho Pika Katano. Now, um, and because he was a Sephardi, Tim Smith, they call him Yankov the Frank. Like in Israel, they call today, you know, that's a Frank. It's not a nice word. So, Yaakov Frank. So, they call Frankism. Uh, these are the followers of him. For some reason, he got a big following in Poland and Central Europe in the when he showed up there in the 1750s, 60s, and 70s, and afterwards. It's not exactly clear. I have a hunch, best as I can tell, I could be wrong, that people, it's particularly in Prague, because Prague became a major center of this game, believe it, during the lifetime of the Yudah. And um, I think that families were turned off to a lot of aspects of Yiddishkeit, which I can understand. And they're turned off to from Jews, which again, I can understand, so can you. But the only way, but, but to have an ideology to justify the rejection of traditional practice, they had to come with some kind of new theology. And they liked what this guy said. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I think that's uh, uh, a working uh, definition for the purposes of this podcast. And so what that means is, take a city of Prague, because that's where he lived, uh, which was the largest Jewish community, 10, 11,000 people. It's huge by the standards of that time. You had X number of families, especially rich ones, that they acted one way in the street and another way behind closed doors. Okay? And on the street, they acted like from Jews, and they attended services in Shul and all the rest of it, although not too often, as few as you can do. But behind closed doors, when nobody's looking, yeah, Gilarai Shrikhanam Abarizar. That's 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 what they call Frankism. It's a strange episode in Jewish history. It's not exactly like people living double lives today, although we certainly have that too. But today people do it just because, you know, they want to break away from the what they find the, the stifling uh control from community. Which again I understand that. And so a person could be a chassid. I think I told you this one. A person could be a chassid, but live a double life. It's sad, but such things happen simply because it's not ideological. They're trying to break free. You get it? And sometimes they do like the Franks. They might break free in a very um, immoral way, shall we say. I don't want to go into details. 
Uh, it's not possible to go into details on Frankism on a podcast. Uh, it would fry the waves. But anyway, um, you had this. Right? You had this. These people rejecting principle Torah. Well, they have the craziest theological notions. The note of Yehuda had to deal with this problem all during his career. Now, I mentioned some time ago at South Sofer, when you're a rub of a Kehillah, which, which you don't really have today. It's not like nowadays where the Orthodox is sort of self-segregated. And so a rabbi today in Orthodox Shul can say whatever he wants in terms of keeping misses and that sort of thing because everybody is self-defined as from. <clears throat> Otherwise, they wouldn't be tending Orthodox Shul. You don't have many shuls like when I was a kid where they call it Orthodox, but there were all kinds of different people in there. Many of them didn't keep the misses. So then the rabbi would have to tailor his remarks and usually not well to, you know, not push the left wing too far that they'll leave, but not, you know, but at the same time try to help the right wing. We talked about this when we talked about Pressburg. Prague is a perfect example. So if you know to be Huda, who was a god mamish, so he was exquisitely aware, exquisitely aware of the need for uh, Achtos and how Pirud can rip the community apart and destroy everything. So you might say Pirud is worse than anything else. On the other hand, what do you do with Shabtai Tzvi? You had Shabtai Tzvi guys or Frankists in this community. And so what he did, which is just interesting, is to a certain degree he didn't don't ask, don't tell. You know what I said? Never you to a certain degree, to a certain degree, he didn't, didn't don't ask, don't tell. But at the same time, he made it absolutely clear so that the others shouldn't say, see, the reason he's doing don't ask, don't tell is he really secretly agrees with it or he doesn't think it's so bad. He would publicly castigate them and once or twice a year, like on Yom Kippur, he would issue a public curse. They should all drop dead. They should all get cancer. They should all, uh, uh, you know, you give them the worst curses. Uh, it, this is, Jewish life years ago. You understand what I'm saying? On your Rosh on Yom Kippur, maybe it was called Nidre, maybe it was Neil, I don't remember exactly what. In a very solemn occasion, he would get up, and not a Mishaberach, the reverse of Mishaberach. Right, a big curse, and it was a terrible curse. So then, there's no question that he's against it, but that doesn't mean, as they say before, he's going to go and out this family or that, because there could be some rich, powerful family, whatever, and they could go to the authorities, and... They could make claims that he's doing something wrong. By the time it all, you know, it, it could be a, 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 a happy ground, happy underground for Machloikas and corrupt the whole community apart. And who knows? These guys might get the possibility of coming out in the open and forming their own community, like happened in the 19th century with the reform. So he wanted to prevent that. So the note would be to walk the tightrope, right? He's very bitter about this. Um, but he walked the tightrope. Our hero, who, unlike the Nodi who was born in Prague, and therefore was etzeme at some bosom of some, he knew better than anybody who's who and what's what. When the Nodi who died, and he became the chief of Dian, these guys, the Frankists especially, and remember, the, the French Revolution that broke out, they killed the king, they overthrew the existing order, the world looked like it's going for a revolution in values, Mama's a revolution in values. And so the Frank has said, this means Mashiach is coming, the Mashiach is Frank. It's going to in, 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 introduce a new era, uh, Messianic era. His Messianic era would be characterized by, I don't know what, orgies and who knows what. I'm serious. And he said 1800 is going to be the year, 1800. Even as a Geisha year, you know, 1800. I repeat, you have to understand the most unusual changes were happening in the 1790s because of the French Revolution. And Austrians were freaking out. They shouldn't extend to the Austrian Empire, where Prague was. So all I can say is that our hero lost it, and he came out with both barrels, with all kind of writings, against and naming names, attacking people in the community who were Frankist and cursing them, this, that, and the other, and using the harshest language possible. And um, even it provoked a riot, actually, that the people in the community were so stirred by his speeches that they went to beat up some of these uh, Frankist guys who really were. And I want you to understand, these two were Jewish, eminent merchants, lawyers, Hashem people he was accusing. I didn't say he was accusing them falsely, but he was accusing people in power. And they got the police to arrest our hero and some other rabbis and put him in jail for a while. 
and the authorities made it clear. He said, you can't uh, go and uh, make any riots over here. And uh, if you're interested in this at all, it's a theme that runs all through his Chalice and Shubas and through his other writings. He, he, he wrote a, a book called Avas Yonason. Avas David, I'm sorry. Right? Avas Yonas, Avas David, in which uh, he names names and uh, he really curses out the, what he called the Shabtite Zviism, but he means the Frankists. And, uh, oh, it's in great detail. Uh, was he successful? The Frankist movement kind of dissipated after his assault, but I don't think because of him. It dissipated, at least the best as we can tell, because the people simply became totally secular. You understand? Uh, if you don't believe in the Torah, it's like what's happened in America. If they're not interested in Yiddishkeit, you know, you just leave the Machna altogether. And that's what happened after 1800, although some communities still kept up their family traditions of Zabatianism, or Frankism of another generation or two, but their own kids were so far removed from Judaism, they didn't even know what Frankism means. Because you see, you're against the Gemara, you don't even know what the Gemara means anymore. It's like American Jews today. They just don't know anything, you see? So it's a whole interesting discussion, but he certainly is famous in Jewish history as an eloquent and particularly uh, strong denunciator of uh, Frankism. He calls it Shabtai Sviism, but that's what it means, the Frankism. And, uh, oh, they're, they're dogs. They should all, like I say, they should all die of a sickness. Uh, they're devils, you know, like I said before. He's, if you're interested in this kind of Lashonara, you want to read the books of Walter um, Fleckless. Now, as I said before, he was a great speaker. And I think as time went by, his money situation wasn't great, which is one of the reasons why the Nodavi Yudah tried to get him the job um, and once he got a job, he had a salary. And as he rose in the basin, you know, he got raises. So his money situation was okay. But in order to make some extra money to marry his daughters off, he used to say, he ended up publishing collections of his sermons. And uh, it used to be, I needed. I used to use this stuff when I did my graduate work on in college. But um, now, and I've mentioned before, we live in the fortunate era that there's some machon out there that have published all of his, the three volumes of his um, sermon stuff. It's called Machon Yitzach Yaakov. I think it's in Brooklyn. And uh, I can only say I love him. That I recommend him. One's called Olus Chodesh um, Rishon and Olus Chodesh Shani and Olus Chodesh Shlishi. And Olus Chodesh Rishon, which is the first one was published, I believe when the Nodabi was alive, there's a bunch of speeches for, for um, Elul and Tishrei. And they're good. And um, the second one is, uh, I think, Hesperids that he gave. He was a very good Hesperid guy, including a, a very classic Hesperid for another Yehuda, as you would imagine. And the third one is of all the politics. If you like the denunciations of Shabtai Tzvizim and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's, uh, uh, listen, he is what he is. It's very good. Now, let me define what I mean when I say very good. The great doctrineers like him, and he's up there with the great ones, in my opinion, they have the following. It's an old school. This is not the modern style at all. But I, I happen to like it. Um, I used to look at this a lot more. For some reason, in the corona, I stopped looking at these sort of things. You know, all of our behaviors have changed to some degree. With me, I don't look at the Drush swarm so much anymore Um last 12 months. But in the past, I have. What they do is they have to give a speech. So they'll string together all these chazals or psukim or things like that and you weave them together. So let's say I was looking at a hesped. Meanwhile, a hesped has 10 gemars, 15 midrashim, 10 chazals, 5 psukim. Each one of those is a thing by itself. You get it? Each one is a thing by itself. So suppose I had to give a speech today on baloscha. I could probably go and look in the table of contents on the index, what he has in baloscha and um, come up with a great vart. Because he's a good darshaner, he has a fine feel for this stuff, in my opinion. And it's a mechaiderit. He's a good speaker. He has a haggadah that's also really good that I've spoken about in the past. I think he's a good writer. And his Hebrew is easy and very nice. And uh, it's a pleasure to read. That's why it was a popular chitty book once upon a time. I would say for a generation or two. Then it lost its popularity, as happens. Um, 
and especially out of, outside of Central Europe. But recently, I'm sure it's a Hasidic group or something like that, that republished it because it's classic of the old school. So I can't speak, in my opinion, I can't speak highly enough of his Russia. They're really cool. And if you ever needed speeches, you get these three volumes. As they say, you just use the index to see, you know, what Parshat is or what uh, Gemara it is or what Medrash it is. Usually you'll find some good stuff by him. I always do. In the past, I always have. Um, oh, I have to go somewhere now. I'll finish this up in a little while. Hi, I'm uh, picking up where I have to go daily. Uh, picking up where I left off before. I was uh, speaking in praises of his uh, homiletical ability, which I think are great. Otherwise, uh, as you can tell by the way I'm talking about him. But uh, our hero was also a Rav of Basin and so forth. Classic uh, rabbinical type of the old school. At the very end of the period of the history of the old school, and he had Shalos and Shubas because in his day, uh, he was an authority people respected. And he has two volumes that are called Teshub Me'alva, about 400 uh, responses altogether, which is a lot. Some are with him and his Rebbe and other contemporaries, and you see he got letters from all over the world, all over Europe. So he was considered a Chashua person. It's only politics that stopped him from being elected the full chief rabbi Prague, which I think most people would agree he should have been the one. Um, but, you know, the Nod of Yehuda had been there for years. He wanted Nod of Yehuda, like Moses, wanted his son to take over. I mean, he can't help but parents have uh, an nepotistic uh, gene. If Moshe Bain was like that, everybody was like that. You know, Hashem told Moshe, it's not your son, it's got to be Yoshua. You know, so it goes to show you, because I'll tell you that, it's, it's you know, it's, it's in your genes. Now, um, but nevertheless, um, whatever his official title was, even if it was like Rosh Bezdin, people used to send him all the Shilas. And his Shilas are great, in my opinion, and in many others. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, obviously. I would only call your attention to anything that has to do with Shabtai Tzviism. Woo, boy! He, go, he goes off the, off the reservation. And what I really like, you have no idea what, how crazy life was at that time. A guy wrote to him, very famous, a student of his, wouldn't marry a girl from a Frankist family, Shabtai family. But she's not like that. You know that line? I got a girl for you, but she's from Barbuck, but she's not like that. She's from, uh, you know, uh, Upper West Side, but she's not like that. She's from B'nai Brock, but she's not like that. I never heard of a girl who was like that, you know. So the guy said, she comes from a family, as we would say, Shabtai Tzvi's mom, but she's not like that. And, uh, and you know, he was writing to his beloved Rebbe. He said, don't touch it. Get out of here. Uh, my Rebbe, the note of Yehudi, says, said like this. If McCarthy called a guy a communist, he was a communist. Anybody was accused, he reports, anybody was accused of being a Shabtai Tzvi, was. You know? So don't believe it. And she is like that. And even if she wasn't, the genes are bad in the family. as poison. It's like, a, it's like a spiritual poison. And boy, oh boy, does he go off into one of them. And he says, you remind me of the notorious case. Because he starts thinking about all the terrible things that the Frankists did. And he says, you remind me Oh boy, Derek Klal. He's Ishto Kisheritsu. Boy, uh, oh, whatever. Derek Klal, Hema Yosef Roim Chatoim, Lashem, Mikusim, Aflach Shagosahim, Magrum, Yosem Mikaroim, Sherechbem, Hagon Salashkenazi. They're worse than all the other sectarian groups in Jewish history. The Karaites, the Tzedukir, Mikolim, Mr. Bazanis, as opposed to Lavoli Rizuru. They're certainly worse, these Frankists, than Christians. Christians are decent people, he says. These dogs. They all follow this perverted statue of Yaakov, Frank, and his daughter, because Frank had a whole cult. You know what it's like? I'll give you a good example. <clears throat> Even though it's not exact, obviously. The best word I can think of for Frankism for an audience like this, Scientology. Imagine if Frank had a certain Scientology cult. They asked me today, what kind of nut goes for the Scientology? The answer is all these big Hollywood freaks. Rich people, powerful, you know what I mean? They read into what they want to read. And this guy had a daughter, and it was it was the age of fabulous frauds. You know, Casanova, uh, Cagliostro, Baron Munchausen, the 18th century. So he was part of that. And he's going over here, on and on and on. And he says, it reminds me, <laughs> it reminds me that what he called uh, of the coin. Where is it? Here it is. Mashakoso. Moreno Amiti, what the Nodebuda says to a, a people in a certain town, 
A coin, a Frankens got up, and when he turned around to Duchen, he made the sign of the cross. And remember, this book has got to be published in a Catholic country. He said, I guess, I got nothing against the guy making the sign of the cross. That's their religion. I respect it. But a Jew to do so is actually mocking the Christian religion. You see, he said that so that the Catholic authorities will punish the guy. <laughs> That's how diplomatic he was. And uh, can you imagine, you know, you would get a question like this. A priest that made it, I mean, a, a, a coin makes a sign of the cross in a show on Yomta when he's talking. Oh boy. Of course, the shot I think is that uh, a lot of the Frankists were half converted to Catholic because they're afraid if they don't convert or semi convert, the other Jews will kill them. This is what happened to Frank in, in Poland in 1756. So, all I'm saying is a crazy time. He has a lot of tubes about the Frankist stuff. And boy, it's very interesting to read, even though it's a lot of Lushan horror. He has interesting things about Jewish about Kabbalah, by the way. He has no time for Zohar. Okay? He doesn't exactly say the Zohar is a forgery, but he comes darn close. <laughs> and the reason is because the Frankism and the Shabbat all based everything on the Zohar, and that led the Frum to be anti-Zohar. <clears throat> he has a whole thing over here. Right? When the Austrian government pr- prohibited publishing uh, Kabbalistic books, he said he supported it. He said, I'm gonna respond to the one who says that the Zohar is a holy book. This is a Golador. Woo boy. There's a lot of baloney in the Zohar that was added in by forgers and later plagiarists. Asher Hosifu, they add all kind of bad stuff into the Zohar, and you can't tell what they are. This is a classic opinion of Yaakov Enden. Yaakov Enden has a book called Mitpah Sofrim, in which he pulls apart the Zohar and he says, maybe the original stuff is good, but there's so much been added in there by phonies and bad people that you can't trust it anymore. That's their opinion. And he, then he gives a classic Lechvish of art. Ola achas mitalme bavli, havayas tabai rava, kodesh yoser, mikol sefer hazohar. Look at that. One per like whatever Ruderman was it. One page of Gamarashi Tosh is better than the whole Zohar. <laughs> See, this is this is the world of Nodi Bihuda. He called doors me Roshwa Zoho, Lo Zohu Zebra Zomuma. You never hear any of the Rashon talking about the Zohar. Didn't come out till the twelve hundreds, nobody heard of it. Lobahokits, Lobahalob, Kihim, Hine Imamisa Dover Shahibame, Hatana Shimbin Yochai. If it's really true that Shimbin Yochai wrote all this, who was one of the rabbis of How come there's not a trace of it, mention of it, in the Nicola, in the Zohar? I mean, in the Gemara. Right? And it was only a couple hundred years ago that they start saying they found it. Who said this is true? I'm not saying Shimon Yochai made it up. I'm saying he didn't. Somebody else claims he did. <laughs> See? I have to... Oh, he says, I know Shimon Yochai was one of the great Tanoim. But I don't think he wrote it. And anybody with a half IQ, Yagi came. There are plenty of people that are post this. See, he's quoting from Yaakov Emden. And so on and so forth. And he says, You have to understand the times. These guys were suffering, holding the line against the Shabtai Tzvi and the Frank. Right? Ever since the Zohar, the Kabbalah came out, in Tereshu a lot of people went off the derech. A lot of things were used by these phonies, language of the Zohar, which are very hard to understand and could be misused by them for nefarious purposes. Look how the Shabtai Tzvi guys used the Zohar so successfully. And some of his bums, Barach Misanaki, Yaakov Frank, Shame Rosham Yurko, but told the rain to save the Zohar. And they all did all this. Therefore, he says, I approve the prohibition of the Zohar. Now, that, I, I, I want to repeat. 
he doesn't quite say that the whole thing's a forgery. But he says, when you look at it, the book today, you think a lot of stuff is forgery in there. It's hard to tell the original from the from the extras. Right? Now, that's a strong statement. And he was a from guy, my goodness. Right? He was a from guy. But it's, it, this is classic, by the way, in the polemic about the Zohar. He's one of those who takes this position. If you were in Prague, you understand what, what the results were. You could hear where he's, you understand where he's coming from. <laughs> right? Now, um, he has a lot of other... I remember he has a thing about the Putin. Should you say Putin or not? He said not. Uh, he has about women in St. Kaddish. He has um, who's Shimon ben I'm sorry. Who's Blazar uh, uh, Kaliri? Who is that? You know, like a history disquisition. It's got a lot of very interesting things. The uh, book has never been reprinted. It's, it's been photoed. I have the you know photo of the original. I don't think it's been reprinted anyway. Uh, I'm waiting until they do. I would really like it if they came up with a nice edition with, you know, uh, footnotes and all that sort of thing, the way they do sometimes for Sefer uh, Chumiyav. It would be a very wonderful historical resource besides Alokhiguan. Besides Alokhiguan. And again, I find his writing to be crystal clear. He was a gifted writer. He wasn't a Moscow, so he didn't take dick to court, but he had natural. You understand? It's clear he was a natural a writer, a gifted writer, and gifted speaker. When he was alive, you didn't have to listen to a boring speech. Uh, I won't say that about all his colleagues. Some of the others reported, we have eyewitness reports that people were turned off with board and all the rest of it. That's one of the things that, uh, what shall I tell you, helped the decline of Warsaw Judaism in Prague because the quality of preaching went down. And if you don't grab the attention of the public, They'll drift off in other directions. The Haskalah movement and the Austrian government's uh, cultural policies were such that it helped undo all the Frumkite. And our hero passed away in 1826. I would say by then, by another 10 years, the Yiddishkeit was uh, more or less like a mummy in a in a museum. <clears throat> there always was Orthodox Judaism in Prague, but very few people actually kept anything. This was true down till the, till <clears throat> Hitler. There were a few families, not many, that stayed from all the way through. And, you know, there were some good rabbis and all the rest of it. But overall, Prague became a symbol of Hisnavnus, of a decline in uh, Judaism, and I would say a, uh, a weakness, you understand? A cultural weakness, which is very sad. Uh, and many people used to visit Prague later on. They said, what happened? I thought this was the Iker Mokum Koron Yisrael. And it was for century after century. But they ran into this buzzsaw, and they didn't have a way around it. Now, again, maybe Hasidism would have changed things. Maybe if you had a Hassam Silver type, it was just like all fire and brimstone. Maybe, I don't know. Lazar Fleckus was somewhat fire and brimstone. But in Prague, they couldn't bring themselves to develop an ideology which wasn't true, which said, Oli Munichol Maybe that's what was required. That's what some server said. He says, you know, you have to come up with an ideology which may not exactly be true historically, but is a necessary one for the times we live in. It's interesting, you know, Prague had such a deep, strong uh, classical culture, they couldn't bring themselves to, to say something they didn't think was correct. But they paid the price, okay? They paid the price. So, Blazer Fleckles died in 1826. Oh, he was mourned and this and that and the other. But it wasn't, you know, it, the world fell apart uh, uh, afterwards. It was, uh, he must have been an unhappy man, I think, in his old age. Even though he's very wise, and like I say, he was able to get along with the government, and, you know, and with the community, all the rest of it. So he brought many virtues. Um, but in addition to virtues, in order to be a successful rabbi, you need mazel. And part of the mazel is to live in the right time and right place. It's not good to live in Poland in 1939. Like, uh... Uh, Mrs. Rechtan's uh, mother-in-law, we were, whose memory we are discussing today. She had the misfortune of living in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, it's better to have lived in Baltimore in 1939, you understand? But you don't get to make that choice. Brother Shalom runs the world, and you are where you are. Considering he was where he was, you know, he put up the good fight. And I'll say it again, his literary legacy is, uh, in my opinion, quite underappreciated. As you can see, I'm a fan of his. And I think if more people read his stuff, they would become um, impressed with him also. I don't get any money out of selling his books, 
But I do hope one day, and I imagine this will happen, they will uh, put out a nice edition and do justice to his uh, work. They certainly did a nice edition of the Drushos. These three volumes that I have in front of me as I'm speaking. There they did a nice job. It's a good print, and it's a good index and all the rest of it. They, they really did. I'm waiting. They should do such thing for his response up. And then uh, he'll get more credit than, than he usually gets, I think. On the other hand, as I said before, it's a mazel. To come after the Nodabihuda is is to be called upon to fill very big shoes. It's not so simple. It's like the guy who came after the Vilna Gaon, you know what I mean? The guy who came after the Rambam. It's always going to be hard to fill big shoes that are left by somebody else. But uh, in terms of integrity and ability, um, he was, uh, uh, in my opinion, a very great man. Anyway, with that, I uh, bid you a good day. And again, the Shom Shabbat Aliyah. With that, I say goodbye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.